most, most great startups have some type of a creative insight or earned secret. And then you have to find some way to translate that earned secret into a product that people will use and that has a good business model and where you can get attractive customers. And so where, where um, the way I like to think about it is you want to get out of a mode of we're all in a room and it's like whose opinion is right. Instead, what I, what I like to do is say, okay, let's write down on the whiteboard what we think the truth is. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Mike Maples. Uh, can you tell my audience a little bit more about uh, what you do and, and, and your connection to stress? Yeah, so I used to be a startup founder, and then I decided to start a venture capital firm. And so now uh, Floodgate, which is the firm I helped start, invests either too early or way too early in startups. And so, for example, we invested in Twitter when they couldn't decide what to call it. It was either Voicemail 2.0 or TWTTR. We invested in Twitch when it was Justin.tv. We invested in Lyft when it was Zimride. We invested in Okta when it was Sasher. And so um, about the only thing that happens consistently is these companies we invest in change a lot and have to navigate the uncertainty of finding product market fit and finding a business. And so we, we like to think of ourselves as more co-conspirators than investors because we're jumping into the fray before there's a parade to jump in front of. Would you would you describe that early stage as the most stressful part of the of the journey, or what is that? What is the role of stress in that early stage? Um. I, I believe that uh, with startups, you have different types of stresses through time, because what it what it takes to create value changes through time. So in the early days of a startup, you start out dead and have to prove you're alive, and so you're sort of you get some money if you're lucky. And now you're just parachuted onto the playing field. You have an uncertain product, an uncertain customer. Uh, nobody's heard of your startup. You have no distribution, no nothing. And so you have to, you, you literally have to make something out of nothing and MacGyver a value proposition. And then, and then you kind of transition into what I would call one to X mode or growth first mode. And then the stresses change because you have to, you have to go from being MacGyver to being the VP of nothing. And so now all of a sudden you have to hire professionals in some of the key jobs that facilitate predictable growth. And a lot of founders either make the wrong hiring choices or they're uncomfortable hiring people who are more experienced than they are. So that's a different kind of stress. And then, and then you kind of get bigger and it becomes a battle to be the category king and you may be battling other startups, you may be battling really big incumbents that enter your space. And that creates a whole new kind of stress as the, the, the big guys try to encroach on your turf and squash you like a bug. And so I'd say, and then, and then once you become a real company and maybe public someday, you have a whole lot of other different kinds of stress. You know, this division doesn't get along with that one. We're getting criticized by the press for this set of reasons. 
you know, I'm sure that Mark Zuckerberg feels a lot of stress, even though it's a different kind of stress than a company with no customers feels. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so do you find that founders are made or are they, uh, or do only founders or only people who are kind of drawn to that world are the ones who do it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that most, so for example, if a founder comes to me and says, what do you think of this idea? Do you think it's a good idea? It's almost by definition, I would say you're not ready to raise money. Mm-hmm. Because if you're looking for other people to validate whether the idea is worth you pursuing, mm-hmm. it's almost by definition not. And so love conquers all in a startup and you have to be so committed and passionate about the idea that you'd do it even if you wouldn't, couldn't raise the money. And then, and then in that case, stress looks differently to that founder basically because to that founder, they're, they've got values that they're fighting for essentially in building this startup. So it means that they're fully invested so that any sort of, sort of stress is just an obstacle as opposed to something else, would you? I, th- I think so. So uh, most, of the, most of the great founders I've worked with, um, they, they encounter great obstacles. For example, in the case of Lyft, it wasn't even legal in a lot of cities. And so you, you, had, the, the, you had Travis Kalanick at Uber, who was a maniac coming dead at him, raising money at will and trying to t- run him out of business. And then you had the local city councils in some of these towns. And so that obviously created a lot of, a lot of stress for the founders. And part of, I think, how great founders deal with that stress is that they're so um, clear about their mission and they're so committed to making it happen Mm. that they just go through whatever obstacles they have to go through. Mm. But there are definitely unique stresses in that zero to one phase related to the uncertainty of how do you navigate, how do you navigate a world where you got no product yet, no customers yet. Uh And what is your main advice to, to founders who are in this early stage who struggle with stress? Um, is it, do you have any pieces of advice for them? Yeah, I think that the, the first thing is that um, there's a difference between fear and danger. Mm-hmm. And so fear is not real. It's mm-hmm. only in your mind. Mm-hmm. Danger is real. Mm-hmm. And so, so there, are, there, there are things about a business where if they don't work out, you don't have a company. So, for example, Chegg, a company I invested in, uh, did textbook rentals. And if, if, if a new textbook for $100, if a student wouldn't rent that for 35 nothing else really mattered because textbook rentals couldn't really happen. And so is, is that something worth being concerned about? Well, it's certainly dangerous, right? But, but you have to either decide that you can navigate through that, and that that's not going to be an issue, that that's not going to stop the company, or, or not, in which case you have to be in a different business. But where, where a lot of founders run into problem is when um, they, they become paralyzed or they spin their wheels because they have all this mind chatter. And so it's like, okay, well, what do I do if this doesn't work? What do I do if this doesn't happen? How many customers should I talk to? Am I doing the right things today? Am I focusing on the right priorities? Is this the feature people are really going to want? When do I start to care about sales? You know, how do I think about what product market fit is or isn't. And so what, what can happen is your mind can get crowded out by all this internal, we call it monkey chatter. And you know, we like to say that fear is the mind killer in a startup. And so you have to, you have, to have some way to figure out what are today's problems that matter and focus on those and have frameworks that let you feel empowered and focused in navigating through that, pushing through it 
rather than let yourself become overwhelmed with all the potential open switches that you could think of. Mm -hmm. And so basically establish constraints on, them, on yourself and figure out what actually do we have to do today in order to make the, move the ball forward as opposed to what are these things that, um, that aren't really ha won't really have an effect and what am I creating in my head, basically. I think so. And then there are, other, there are other frameworks that we have found to be helpful. So, for example, with back to the example of Chegg and textbook rentals, we could have just said, ta-da, here's Chegg, we're renting textbooks. But what we, we, there's this one framework that we worked on with Osman. I mean, Osman and I usually did it, but it, you call it data-driven discovery. And what you do is you, you come up with no fewer than 100 assertions. So an assertion might be, we believe that a $100 textbook, students will be willing to rent it for 35. We believe that women are more likely to rent books than men. We believe that freshmen are more likely to rent than seniors. We believe that non-technical students more likely than technical students. We believe that community college students more likely than private school. Uh, and and um, we used to say you can't stop until you have at least 100 assertions. And then once you have that, you, you have one column that says, how confident am I that I'm right? Would I bet a week's burn, a month's burn, or a year's burn that, that this is right, correct? And then the next column is, how, how bad is it if we're wrong? Uh, is, it, is it just, hey, that's data, we learned something? Like if, if it turns out men rent more than women, it's not necessarily a problem, it just changed your mind to what the truth was gonna be. Whereas if, if, if students wouldn't rent textbooks for more than $30, it, 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 the Chegg doesn't have a business in textbook rentals. And so if you think of it like a matrix, what you're trying to do is isolate of those hundreds assertions what are the ones that you have the least certainty about and that are the most problematic if you're wrong? And those are the things that you want to immediately convert as assumptions into facts. And you don't necessarily have to release a product to do that. So for example, a buddy of mine, Tim Ferriss, when he launched the four-hour workweek book, he wanted to call it drug dealing for fun and profit. And we argued about it. And uh, we said, hey, rather than us argue about it, why don't we just pretend that both books are real? And so he, he says, hey, buy Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit. He had 99 designs, design uh, a cover. And hey, buy the four-hour work week. And when somebody would click, they'd get a 404 error. We, we did, the author wasn't even Tim Ferriss. You know? and, and really, we just wanted to understand how the audience would respond to both of the different titles. And fortunately, they liked the four-hour work week better. Mm -hmm. But, but um, you, you know, know it's, it's kind of the, you know, sometimes you can test an assumption without shipping, shipping the product, money, right? right? And, and you want to do that because you're, 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 you're interested in getting the truth of what's going to work, what's not going to work as quick as you can. Uh, and so that's the, that's the key. And, and what you want to do is you also want to do it in a way where you say, um, a lot of these things you can kind of teach the answer to yourself. So it turned out that a lot of stuff with textbook rentals if you reasoned your way through it, you were right most of the time. But if you just launched a product, I call it product escape. Sometimes a product just escapes out of the building. And then we learn a bunch of things that were wrong with it or not good about it that we really could have reasoned our way through if we just, it, it's a thinking fast and slow kind of thing. And so in that way, success is actually uh, almost a negative or... or Yeah, or you, you put something out there and you find out a whole bunch of things that you could have found out by just reasoning through it from first principles. 
but what, what most people don't do is because it's so easy to do agile these days, they want to get something out right away. And you know what, what some companies have missed is kind of the value of combining strategic rigor with agility. And, and sort of sometimes you stop and you take the weekend to think through 100 questions because you're going to just, you're, if you're long-term greedy about your time, you save a bunch of time and you're more accurate and precise in how you get the product out. But the other advantage of having frameworks like that is that, you know, like for example, somebody say, when are you gonna hire your first salesperson? Well, that's something to think about, but it's not today's worry. And so you also wanna have a, a mechanism to separate today's worries from tomorrow's worries. And today's worries, you know, you need to understand where the danger is, where the opportunity is, and focus your energy and time on that, be very present. Mm. So what are the common uh, fears uh, that aren't dangers that most entrepreneurs have when starting a business that are unfounded and stuff like that? I think that the problem that a lot of founders run into is they get advice from a whole bunch of different people. And so they have advisors, they have board members, they have VCs, uh, they, all these people. And um, what, what founders need less of, in my view, they need less advice about what to do and they need more advice about just how do you think about it? How do you think about getting to the answer? And so what you want is, uh, you know, these frameworks that are good at sort of helping you tee up the questions and tease out what things need to be answered in what order quickly. And, and you want to be able to do it in such a way where everybody on the team says, that makes sense, I believe in this playbook and then they execute with confidence and precision. Where you run into problems is every week the team's like, well, this guy said this, and this woman said that, and this person said this, and they said that, and the, the team can kind of churn. And so you, you, know, you can tell a really good startup team because whenever you meet with them, they surprise you on the upside with what they've accomplished in the time since you last met them. And so they, they run a very high up-tempo sort of offense where they're, they're extracting more learning from their time than most teams do. Okay, so what is the connection between learning and, and creativity in a business sense? Like, yeah, so, so um, I think that, that most, most great startups have some type of a creative insight or earned secret. And then you have to find some way to translate that earned secret into a product that people will use and that has a good business model and where you can get attractive customers. And so where, where um, the way I like to think about it is you want to get out of a mode of we're all in a room and it's like whose opinion is right. Instead, what I, what I like to do is say, okay, let's write down on the whiteboard what we think the truth is. So for example, you know, in the case of Chegg, we had a hundred things of what we thought the truth was. And then what you do is you release a version based on that current hypothesized truth. And then uh, you get together in a regular cadence and you, you say, what surprised us? And so some set of things surprise you for the good. Uh, in, in the case of Chegg, we were finding that people would rent it for much more than 35. Um, and we were finding that they would understand the value proposition quicker than we thought they would. And then there are other things that surprise you on the negative, um, and so so um, that's the key, right? And and you know a startup is is navigating through uncertainty if every time you meet them you say, "What surprised you?" and they have clear answers of what surprised them for good and not so good. If if they say, "Oh, nothing really surprised us. It's going like we thought," well, that that suggests that they think they already have all the answers, 
and whenever whenever a startup in a zero to one phase thinks they have all the right answers already, I get nervous about that. Like I, I think that that truth seeking in startups is a lot like truth seeking in science. You have a theory, you never you never assume that you have absolute monopoly, complete understanding of the truth. Instead, you think of the truth as something worth discovering that you can approach, you get closer to, and you're always coming up with a set of hypotheses that you test, and then the facts on the ground tell you whether you're getting closer or farther away from, from what, where you want to be. Yeah. So then what's the role in, for philosophy, and then also a technical background, because you talk about science, but philosophy also kind of contributes to that sense of truth discovery and stuff like that. What is the connection between philosophy and starting a company? Would you suggest that people... Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, the main thing would be that um, you, you want to take ego out of out of the decision making. So I, you know, I like to say that ego is about who's right and truth is about what's right. And so you want to do whatever you can as you're discovering the customer, the product, the market, to, to tee up discussions around what is the truth. Not, hey, you come with your point of view, I'll come with mine. You come with your agenda, I come with mine. So you want everybody to look at the same agenda, which is what, like why I like to write on the whiteboard. And you like to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to come up with what we think the snapshot of the truth is right now. We may not even all agree on it. But the good news is we're going um, to come back in a month or so, and we can look at what, what's going our way, what's not. And then we can readjust what we think the truth is. And so you, know, you want to get it about what's right, not who's right. And you want to give people you know the other thing that some people have in startups technical people in particular they have a lot of pride and accuracy and being right and you want to get people in a mode that says it's not about whether you're right or not it's about teasing out the best version of the truth we have right now and then revisiting it on an ongoing basis so it turns out that that um, amateurs can usually outpredict experts at forecasting and the reason is that experts get attached to being right. And if, if you forecast often and frequently, you become less attached to being right and you become more attached to approaching a better answer, which is what you really ought to want to do. Interesting. So essentially to start looking into the future and testing whether your, your previous guesses had been correct. That's right. And, and, and you know, uh, so like good predictions come from intellectually diverse teams that trust each other that have a good process for teeing up what the hypothesis is, and then the ability to come back and look at the hypothesis and judge the surprises on a frequent basis. And, and if, if the, the longer the periods before you, you look at the facts on the ground, the more likely you are to become attached to being right about something, or the less time you give yourself to adjust if, uh, in the areas you were wrong. And so, you know, you want to you want to be able to say, hey, look, we don't even agree on all this, but that's okay because we're going to get to come back again in 30 days. And uh, you know, it's just like, but what we're going to do is commit ourselves to having an opinion at all times that we're testing against. Interesting. Um, and that, and that essentially leads to like knowing what you want and knowing what the company wants or knowing what the company succeeds, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. And and then the other thing about it is, so let's say you're in a zero to one phase. I like to say, okay you go through some steps. So first of all, do we have the right team? Well, if we don't have the right team, we got, we got a deeper issue. We, we need to figure that out before we invest. And the startup team should figure that out before they start the company. But then, okay, let's, let's say we have the right team. Then we might go through what I call value iteration mode. 
um, how many shots on goal do we want to have? How long do we want to have for value iteration? Do we, if we're an enterprise software product, we can't deliver half a loaf uh, to a big customer. If we're a consumer product, we may iterate every week or every day. And so you kind of ask yourself, okay, how much time am I going to give? Let's say I have an 18-month runway. How much of that 18 months goes to value iteration versus early getting ready to sell? And if I'm halfway through value iteration and I'm not progressing at the speed I wanted to, how do I feel about that? But you want to, when you're in value iteration mode, you want to say, I'm not worried about sales right now. I'm going to worry about that's tomorrow's worries. Like today's worry is getting a value proposition. And I already have a playbook for how I'm going to do that. I have this many iterations, this much time per iteration. And at every iteration, I'm going to reforecast what I think the truth is about what we're, what we're seeking here. And then we're going to come back at every iteration and say the facts on the ground are telling us some things. What's the next iteration? Um, and that's way better than just keep flailing until you got 90 days of cash. That's where you get to trouble. Yeah. And so there's a couple different ways we could go with this, but uh, I really want to understand more about how you can find value as a startup finder. How do you know when you're on, on the right track uh, when, you're, when you're creating value, particularly in this enterprise case? Because the consumer case, I, I think I understand that, but how do you make sure that when you come to an enterprise client, you have the entire value figured out? Yeah, what, I, what I've seen happen when a company works is customers start pulling product out of you in a way that makes even more sense for the product vision than what you had in mind. So it's one thing for a customer to say, hey, I want XYZ features, and they make no sense, but you just do it just because you want to satisfy the customer, get their money. It's another thing, and one example of this that I like is Brian Chesky. One day he decides to go knock on the doors of all the Airbnb hosts in the early days, and one guy says, oh, wow, you're the founders of Airbnb, let me show you something. He's got this spiral-bound notebook with page after page of ideas for how to prove uh, Airbnb. And Brian looked at it and he said, you know, this is better than our roadmap. And so, you know, you get the occasional customer who's like, where have you been all my life? And they, they, they've been waiting for a product like yours. And because they've experienced the pain in a very visceral way, as soon as you trigger their imagination with something to react to, they react back with a set of ideas that are very on strategy and, and that involve solving corner cases that you couldn't have thought of yet because you haven't experienced their problem the way they have. And so when that happens, that's a really good sign. It's almost this feeling of, oh my gosh, I gotta lay tracks in front of the train in real time, but the train's going in the right direction. And so that it's a different kind of stress, right? And when you have that kind of stress, you have a lot fewer arguments about what feature to do next because literally the features are being pulled out of you in priority order. And they all make sense and they're all solving the customer problem. They're all accelerating your learning curve. Yeah, and those are good problems to have, but they still have a certain stress, particularly for people who may have imposter syndrome who are like all of a sudden, like now, now it's like, now it's time for me to actually like commit or not. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, part of it is, you know, how do you how do you follow through with those early customers? How do you tell them the truth with no tricks? How do you, um, you know, how do you make them wildly successful so they tell everybody else, all their friends and colleagues and peers about about what you're doing? You talked about pain and customers having pain and stuff like that. So what is the importance of pain uh, for for creating good solutions? I mean, I guess that's kind of obvious, but. Well, it's funny because I think that there's two things that you need. You need pain 
and you also need uh, a compelling event. So what I find is, and, and this is more B2B than consumer, but in the case of business customers, they may be experiencing pain, but they might be comfortable in their present state of pain. And for a, when you think about a startup, it's a provocative act. You're going into a customer and you're saying, I'm a startup, I may be out of business soon. Buy this from me, right? And um, a customer, to be crazy enough to buy from a startup, has to either have so much money they don't care and they just play around with stuff and kick the tires and just fiddle with the latest gizmo. Or they have so much pain and nobody's solving it that they're just like, this is the lesser of evils of taking a risk on a startup and hoping they figure this out. And you know, it's not completely that way because startups, you know, if you're an innovative customer, you get a very direct interaction with very talented people, which is compelling. But um, but it's but it's harder than most people think. And so, I'll give you an example of one that worked for me when I was a founder. Um, when I was at Motive. We, we had software that let people roll out broadband services. And so there was a t point in time where there was no broadband. And so SBC and, and uh, Cox and Charter and all these, all these cable companies and telcos were rolling out broadband. Well, it's one thing for us to say, I have software that lets you roll out broadband without a truck roll. That would have saved them money, that's true. But where we really succeeded was our ability to say, hey, I was listening to SBC's Wall Street earnings call last week. And I heard your CEO say that you're going to roll out a million new subscribers in 18 months. And I'm just curious how you're going to do that. Are you going to roll a million trucks? Uh, you know, how's that happen? And so, like, in the case, in that, or when I was at Tivoli, it, it wasn't enough that we could just do electronic software distribution. We could go to somebody rolling out SAP with a 90-day go-live deadline and say, hey, you have no strategy to go live in 90 days, you know, unless you visit with a floppy disk all 10,000 computer desktops in your company. And so, um, you know, when you have a compelling event, the person realizes I must do something different than what I'm doing now. The, this, this pain that I'm experiencing is not longer acceptable to me. And so a lot of, that's right, a lot of founders underestimate the need to have that compelling event in addition to the value proposition. Because just because so you, you could save a lot of money doesn't mean, hey, I'm a customer, but it may not be my money, not my actual money, right? Maybe my boss's money, maybe the company's money. And you know, for me to make the change, I have to put myself out there and take a risk and be publicly exposed. What if it doesn't work? What if the software's no good? Whereas if we have to come up with a way to provision a million subscribers in 18 months, everybody in the company's like all hands on deck, how are we gonna do this? You know, the person that comes up with a solution to that problem can be a hero. But it's going to happen, right? Like the CEO is not going to go on an earnings call in 18 months and say, just kidding. Uh -huh. Somebody's <laughs> going to get fired before that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, so what is the role of, of creativity, or what is your definition of creativity? Um, for me, fundamentally, it's uh, making something where nothing existed before. And um, it could be creation of a thing whether it's a product or a work of art, or it could be uh, creating a solution to a problem that's not obvious. So um, one example that I like uh, when, when um, I, won't, I won't say all the names to protect the innocent, but one time when I was at Motive, there was like an hour left in the quarter 
and we were a million dollars short of the number. And if we and if we made the number, we we're going to be able to file our S one and go public. If we mi missed the the number, we'd have to start over because we wouldn't be profitable that quarter, and you needed four profitable quarters in a row. So our CEO calls up one of our top customers and says, um, I'll give you a bottle of McAllen single malt scotch 1972 if you call me back. Okay. <laughs> so the guy calls him back and it turns out that this C CTO of this big company really liked this year of McAllen scotch and they'd been jo joking about it uh, a few months earlier at some dinner. And the guy laughs and he said, that's really, that's really good, that's creative. You know, you have a million five purchase order. Congratulations, you just got to the front of purchasing. And so we end up closing that deal with like eight minutes later. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about like with Tim Ferriss as well, is there's that creativity in finding that, in that, in finding that kind of new solution that, that works somehow. Yeah, and too, too many people in this world, when they're faced with something like that, they say, oh my gosh, this is so unfair. They said they were gonna do this. They said they were gonna sign on the dotted line. And if we miss this, we're gonna miss the quarter. We're not gonna be able to go public. We're gonna have to start the clock over again. We may have to do a layoff. This isn't fair, woe is me. What are we gonna do? This is not my fault. How am I gonna explain this to the board? But like the really good founders say, okay, there's like 40 minutes left in the quarter and I need, to, I need over a million dollars. So like, that is the only problem that exists in the world right now is who in this world might give me a million dollars in the next 40 minutes. That is the only thing there is. And, and now that I've identified who those people might be, I need to get them to, I need to get their attention immediately. And so how do I do that? And so, you know, it takes, it, it takes a certain type of creativity to, to just tune out the noise and the hype and, and the, the very best people I've seen is kind of like some of the very best athletes like Michael Jordan at the top of the key at the end of the game. They actually get better under that kind of pressure. Their minds actually get clearer under that set of circumstances. Can you teach someone that or is that something that... I, I don't know if you can. Uh, so um, a friend of mine, Steve Blank, and I have talked about this before. We think that the great entrepreneurs in many ways are like great artists. and you can go to an entrepreneurship class and that's useful, but it's a little bit like going to an art appreciation class. You know, it's like you can get a better appreciation for what's involved, but like, I don't know how you teach somebody with 40 minutes left in the quarter how to find one and a half million dollars that you can't, you don't know where it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. So you're, you talked about the stresses in a zero or end to one situation. Uh, and then how, what are the biggest kind of things that get founders once they go from that one to many or uh, yeah. yeah, well, what happens is, uh, you know, zero to one, it's like the, the metaphor I like to use is MacGyver. And the way, the way you make things happen is you MacGyver miracles out of thin air and you uh, invent something out of nothing. And how long does it take is really unpredictable. It took NG Moco only six months to get product market fit. It took Twitch five years. And so, um, you know, in, the, in that phase, you want to be hawkish on burn, patient for time. And you want to be, you know, it's about juking and jiving and improvising. Well, now all of a sudden you get into this mode where it's like the opposite. You know, they say, I like to say zero to one is like Earth and one to X is like Mars. And now you got to be like Mark, Mark Watney and use science. And so, you know, you need to instrument predictable growth machines and you do want to grow 10X in a predictable fixed range of time. And so, so all the stuff that caused you to be successful 
up until now is, is diametrically opposed to what may cause you to succeed going forward. And so it's very gut-wrenching. I like to say it's like making a forward pivot. And you have to be willing to say, okay, I have to rethink my team. I have to rethink uh, how I manage because in the past, alignment came for free, but now lack of alignment's gonna come for free, right? If you don't overreact for the need of alignment, you'll get a lack of it. And so, um, and, and you know, you go from being MacGyver to VP of nothing. And so, uh, and okay, now you hire these professionals in jobs. Well, your mind starts t playing tricks on you. You say, hey, I'm a 20-something founder. Why is this experienced person going to want to work for me? And what if they what if they think I don't know what I'm doing? And or, or what if I hire the wrong person? Or I've heard all these horror stories about hiring a, the wrong salesperson, and they hire a bunch of wrong salespeople and screw everything up. And so, you you go through a different set of fears, a different set of problems. And part of what's challenging is uh, you know the stuff that, that caused you to succeed in that earlier phase is like all the wrong instincts for how you would solve the problems in these later phases. So what do you tell people then? What do you tell founders in that, in that situation? Um, I tell folks that, well, I like to say, you know, a, a startup has, it's got, it's almost like a elements in a periodic table of chemistry. So I like to say V is value first and that's zero to one. Make something out of nothing, MacGyver, startup team has to make it happen, unpredictable time frame. And then there's G, which is growth first. That's a predictable time frame for 10xing your business with predictable growth machines and new types of people who are professional in those areas of growth know what they're doing. And the, I call it the V to G transition. So like if you think of V, it's almost like a gas, super ethereal. G is more like a flowing stream you know, of liquid. And when you make this transition, the, the question I ask of founders are, is, are you really ready to grow? Do you really have product market fit? And people often say, oh, well, I think I have it. And to me, product market fit's a little bit zen-like. And so the way I like to come at that question is to say, are you prepared, let's say you're a SaaS company, are you prepared to bet the company that you can 10X your revenue in 18 months? And if the answer is no, whatever your set of reasons are for it being no is maybe maybe that's the, the signals of where you don't have product market fit. But the decision to go from value first to growth first is a profound decision. And it's, in many ways, it's a bet the company decision because it's a little bit like the Hertz car rental. If you back up, the tires explode, right? And so it's very hard to retreat from growth first mode. And, and, and so when you're in growth first mode, you're trying to have what I call value creation agenda. So for back to the SaaS company example, you might say, to be a someday top quartile SaaS company, we need to go from a million to 10 million in ARR in 18 months or less, consuming less than 9 million in capital. And, um, and, and that all of those components are important because the only reason we really have permission to lose money as a startup is the amount of value we're creating by losing money is exceeds the amount of value we would have created by being profitable. So we're hoping there's gonna be a someday giant category, we're gonna be the category kings, and by 10Xing our business quickly, we're positioning ourselves to attack that new category faster than any other startup or any incumbents might one day come in. And so, so um, but founders have to, when they make that decision, that forward pivot decision, it's gut-wrenching because 
the type of startup fund they've had up until this point is over. They've got to get ready for a new kind of fund. Interesting. What is that type of fund? The new type of fund is um, copying a small number of things that are working rather than making something up out of nothing, out of thin air. Do some founders who are really good at that first stage just not, can't make the transition? Very often they can't. Uh, they, there's, there's a few ways that, there are a few failure modes. One is not, not putting the right people in the right jobs. And that could either be because you hire the wrong people or because you're just too timid to hire. And so next thing you know, you've got a line of 20 people outside of your office. You've got 20 direct reports, and you hear things like, hey, this company used to be focused. It's not anymore. You know, it's just hard to get this person's time. And CEOs no longer uh, doing product stuff for their superpower, but they're dealing with a bunch of people who are just like chattering at them with questions and what's going on and who's in charge and when are we going to decide and that kind of stuff. The other, the other failure mode is not realizing that doing a small number of things well is paramount in the growth first phase. So very often startups, they do their second product too soon. They go into their next market too soon. Uh, they hedge when they should focus. And, um, or they don't really understand why they had product market fit. So you're better off having one playbook that emanates from the product market fit you've already achieved. And it's kind of a self-awareness thing rather than some companies, they say, oh, we got product market fit, we're on to the next thing, and they may not have had product market fit, or they may have it not know where they had it. Or, but, but like, if you do multiple products, multiple markets, the number of playbooks explodes and multiplies, and now sometimes you can have the same size sales force and you actually sell less, because the salespeople are confused what they're selling to who, whereas if you had just one play, one, one product to one type of customer, one type of salesperson, uh, you're much more likely to execute well on that. You know, you have, you, you, have, you have an opportunity to learn how to walk and chew gum later, right? But, but it, the one to X mode is not about that. It's about taking the proven recipe and getting distribution for it. Mm -hmm. Which to like a lot of founders, early stage founders who have maybe ADD and stuff like that, who really love this process of creating something new, that kind of rigidity that you need in order to just create something out of that out that's of right. that yeah, yeah. That's, right. uh -huh. that's really interesting and, and, and you know founders here's another thing I see happen the company will come up with its second product and the founders are attached to having a big organization or the early startup employees are but very often the founders or the early startup employees would be better off heading up the next new product and having that go from zero to one and letting the more professional sort of experienced seasoned people do the one to X product because eventually a company is really a bundle of products, all of which are in different phases. And you know, how do you allocate the assets of the company across those projects? And then what types of people do you staff? And how do you set goals, right? Like you, you don't want your second product to be half of the business in a year because it'll tempt you to skip zero to one. And there's no, there's no substitute for the scar tissue and the muscle memory of learning zero to one. You just have to, you can't shortcut that. So you recently wrote a post about Origin, one of the companies. Can you talk more about what Origin does and like why you're so excited in them? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically 3D printing has been more of like a novelty. And you had companies like MakerBot that their output was kind of more for fun, but not, not nobody took it very seriously. And more recently, you have companies like, say, Carbon, where 
the printer costs a couple hundred thousand dollars and you have to use their proprietary materials. And so um, I believe that a century from now, most parts will be made on 3D printers rather than with a tool and die. So the way, the way most parts are made today is if you're gonna make a sprue, you make a mold and you, it costs money to tool up for this mold and you amortize the cost of the tooling by making a bajillion screws or a bajillion bolts or whatever the case may be. And then you have that standardized part that you put into as many products as you can. Well, um, and then trillions of these parts throw, flow through supply chains all the time. Yeah. Well, what if you had a day where someday the, the very notion of a supply chain is obsolete because you can make parts at the edge yeah. and, and now you have software defined uh, network centric manufacturing. And so, so the first thing that Origin got right is they used commodity parts to make these printers. But then the second thing that they did, which is maybe even more important, is they can use other people's materials, not just, they, they don't have proprietary materials. So, for example, BASF, which is one of the biggest chemical companies in the world, has been working with them for six months producing parts with BASF chemicals, or sorry, materials. And um, a world where commodity materials can be used with commodity hardware parts powered by software, you could radically alter the cost of producing these 3D parts. And, and, and make it go from being sort of a novelty fringe kind of thing to uh, a mainstream changing yeah changing manufacturing yeah that that's like what how will that affect the the way because I so the way I see the world right now in terms of development we have China that just came in, became a developed country because they've built this manufacturing on this supply chain that you just talked about and now they're kind of developed and now we've got the rest of the developing world who's coming up as well on that manufacturing kind of thing how will that what you just said change change the the the, the so so we don't know for sure but um, the the basic so, so the basic theme behind all my investing is that the world is shifting from corporations to networks. And so corporations leverage mass production and mass distribution. And um, I believe that networks leverage mass computation, mass connectivity. And so the way manufacturing happens in the world today is whoever has the biggest factory wins. You know, whoever can produce the greatest scale wins. But in a, in a, networks, a software-defined network-centric world, we don't know if that's going to be true anymore. Just like, just like uh, back in the, before the internet, newspapers had the printing press. Yeah, they were like three TV media companies and about um, you know, 20 or so uh, media print publication companies that decided what you read. And they had big printing presses and they had trucks that would deliver to your house. And you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't just say, hey, guess what, I'm a newspaper now. But what happened with the internet is it, it, um, it collapsed the advantages of economies of um, scale and distribution. So now mass, mass production and mass distribution no longer were an advantage for the incumbent media companies. Now anybody, you know, Ben Thompson has a good blog on Stratechery, right? And so everybody likes it or whoever likes it can read it and nothing stops Ben from reaching anybody he wants. And, Nothing stops readers from interacting with him and engaging with him. And so now you got that, but for manufacturing, how does that change manufacturing? I think so, yeah. So I think that the same thing will happen with manufacturing someday. I think that um, you could imagine a world where these 3D printers 
redefine manufacturing because it re what it really does, it just empowers makers to make things in a whole different way and without needing the resources of a big manufacturing plant. And then it comes down to people again and, and knowing the right people and connecting the right people and knowing which person might help you kind of uh, f figure this out. Right. So it's, it's funny because a lot of people talk about robots are going to eat the jobs because, you know, machines will be so good in the factories and you won't need people in factories. I like to look at it in the reverse. I believe it's quite possible that software-defined networks are going to eat the companies and um, that in the future uh, there's going to be the network capitalists of the world are going to create and curate these networks and some of the people who add value are going to be employees of the company but some are going to be content contributors or people who are part of their movement and um, all of these networks are going to compete for the interest and attention of the makers who can shift their loyalties from one to the other, depending on who gives them a better deal. So creativity becomes the, the, the silver bullet, essentially, or creativity right, becomes right. The, thing, the thing that allows you to keep your job or have a job. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you know, it used to be you had to work for a company because on your own you didn't have the infrastructure to get customers and to get distribution and to make product and everything else. But in a world where... Um, you have AI that could go help you find customers. You have the ability to publish your ideas. You have the ability to get word of mouth buzz. You got things like Twitter. You've got lots of lots of ways, and where you can manufacture your own parts, and where you don't need a supply chain, but you can be your own. You be your own factory. I don't know where that ends up, but but it feels like there's something profound. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, have you heard of invisible technologies? Uh -huh. uh, yeah, yeah. there. That what you just described kind of sounds like what he's doing for automated work. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I had him on the show earlier. Um, well, yeah, we got about five minutes left. Um, is there one book, article, or interesting idea that you've come across recently that's helped you become more creative, or that you think that other people would benefit um, from? I imagine that a lot of your guests have brought this one up, but um, uh, Creativity Inc. Uh, it's the one about Pixar. Uh, so I like that one a lot. It talks about how Pixar got the most creative production out of its people, like how they how they ran their business, how they how they hired, how they uh, got people excited about the projects they were working on, how they got good teamwork. So I think that one's a good one. Cool. I'll read it. <laughs> and is there like one founder right now who you're really excited about in terms of their creativity? Oh, boy, there's a lot. Um, I think I think Jack Dorsey has always been really impressive. I think that he is a very good at uh, reducing the noise about a product and sort of getting to the essence. And I think that the the fact that he got Twitter right and Square is really really quite a tribute because they're just such very different industries and the product sensibilities are so different. But in both cases. Um, he kind of has a reductionist way of thinking about things that I think is really, really powerful. And is there anything else before we start stop that you just want anybody to know about stress or creativity or anything else you want to add? I think that the main thing is to, um, you know, separate separate the stress that comes from fear with the stress that comes from danger or opportunity. So, for example. There are really good kind of stresses in a, in a startup, like 
one of the reasons I like to have somebody out in the field selling earlier than later is that having the pressure of selling creates a productive tension for the engineering team. One of the reasons I often like to persuade companies to charge for their products sooner than later is there's a huge cultural difference between any amount of revenue and zero. And so there are certain types of stress that you want to feel as a startup because it makes you anti-fragile. And um, the avoidance of those kinds of stresses actually makes you less healthy and worse off. Yeah. Actually, can we talk about anti-fragile a little bit more? Oh. <laughs> what, wh how, how do you think about anti-fragility in your own life or companies that you invest in? Like, what, is, what, what does it mean to, be, to you to be anti-fragile? Yeah, to me, the, the simplest way I think about anti-fragile is that some people or organizations, when exposed to stress, get off their game, are worse off, encounter difficulties. An anti-fragile person or organization gets better the more stress is introduced. And so, um, you know, like one metaphor that I've heard some people say is that like, if you, never, if you never ingest any bacteria from the environment, your microbiome won't be in, in balance. And so if all you ever did is take antibiotics all day long and use hand sanitizer all day long, you actually wouldn't be as healthy as the person who uh, is willing to be exposed to some amount of stress in terms of, you know, uh, the, the environment. And so that to me is anti-fragile is I relish the chaos, I relish the stress, I relish those things because that's like, it's like that 40 minutes left in the quarter. It's like that's, I actually get better when that happens. Like I actually get more focused. And that, for, for if you read, you know, the way the human body evolved, that's the way the human body, humans evolved is basically with high amounts of stress. Uh, and that's that, I mean, and that's the theory of evolution is the evolution is that the fittest survive uh, because they've been induced by stress to, yeah. Yeah, and most of the recent research even on working out suggests that high intensity training is better. So that, like, I just think that there's, that, that, that applies in business too, that like, you, you know, you want to have the right type of intensity that creates the right type of stress because it builds your muscles and the scars are worth it. You earn those scars. But what you don't want to have is stress that's related to fear because fear isn't real. Fear is only like what's in your head and what you worry about. And this, this idea of this high, high intensity interval training, they, they, they found that with like periods of 10 minutes. Uh, so like you actually have high periods of stress for a small period of time, right. but then low levels of stress throughout the rest of the day. And that, that the best combination for your fit, fitness health is you do four hours of low intensity, or low intensity cardio, and then five to 10 minutes of high intensity cardio. So it's like a very stressful for sh short periods of time, but then you go into this low, low level where there's not as much. Yeah. yeah it's kind of bursty. And then, and then, and then uh, a marathon. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom. It was really a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to meet you.